Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. A strange and mysterious espionage case was revealed by Dutch intelligence this week. They allege that a Russian GRU agent, undercover as a Brazilian, was trying to infiltrate the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Among the places this individual had studied, the Johns Hopkins School of International and Advanced Studies, where former Deputy CIA Director John McLaughlin teaches. SICE might have been what I would call a laundering stop for him. In other words, these people, Russian illegals, uh, have to establish a, a legend, a story, a cover, and to the extent that they credential themselves in this way. It it builds layers of credibility on that cover. We'll hear John McLaughlin's thoughts on this case and so-called illegal spies later in the episode. Really looking forward to that interview, uh, Gene. That's a really intriguing subject. Anyway, meanwhile, the shadow war between Israel and Iran continues to escalate with assassinations and a mysterious poisoning in Tehran. And we've learned that Iran is building tunnels now near its nuclear facility at Natanz, another future likely Mossad sabotage target. So we're revisiting the subject again this week with Jonathan Broder, a spy talk contributing editor who spent decades covering or writing about the Middle East, first based in Israel with the Associated Press and Chicago Tribune, and then from Washington with the San Francisco Examiner, Congressional Quarterly, and Newsweek. John Broder, welcome back to Spy Talk. So what's going on in the shadow war between Iran and Israel? Seems like Mossad is running wild these days. Well, there have been uh, quite a few assassinations um, in the past few weeks. Um, This campaign of assassinations has been going on since 2017, but it had sort of declined in the past uh, few months. But now it's really picking up again. Indeed, it is. Um, It seems like they're like the uh, Golden State Warriors running through the opposition. Let's start with uh, May 22nd, the assassination of Colonel Syed Kodai, the Revolutionary Guard. What happened to him? Okay, let's uh, first explain who he was. Um, He was the uh, deputy commander of a covert unit that uh, we didn't know anything about until his assassination. Hmm. Uh, Unit 804, it's uh, within the uh, Quds Force, which is sort of the foreign assassination team of of the Revolutionary Guards. Um, This uh, Unit 804 uh, was responsible for kidnapping or assassinating uh, enemies of Iran overseas. And uh, they had targeted Israelis in a number of countries, uh, Ethiopia, Kenya, Turkey, and a couple of countries in Europe. All of those attempts failed, but Israeli intelligence learned that this fellow Hodai was the director and the planner of these operations. Hmm. So he was traveling in his car in North Tehran, which is where his neighborhood, where he lived, And in a sort of tried and true method of assassination, 
two assassins on motorcycles pulled up alongside his car and they pumped five bullets into his head and disappeared got away disappeared <laughs> and uh, then um it turns out that his deputy or another deputy commander of this unit was suspected of uh, providing the israelis with intelligence hmm. and he suddenly uh, flew off the roof of his building but somehow did not manage to fly and landed on the pavement and he's dead now too and that's Colonel Ali Esmail Zaydeh, who, quote, fell from his balcony. Is that the same guy? Yeah, the, the, the suspicion uh, is that Iranian intelligence fingered him as being responsible for providing the intelligence that allowed the assassination of Khodai, and therefore he was thrown off the roof by uh, Iranian agents. Boy, this is sounding like an, like episodes from Tehran, yes. that great uh, spy thriller on Apple TV, which just just uh, wound up with a spectacular closing episode this week. Okay, then we have May 31st, Ayub and Tazari, if I pronounced that correctly, an Iranian aerospace engineer, poisoned. Yeah. Now, what happened with him was that um, he uh, had, has a doctorate, or uh, had a doctorate in... Um, uh, aeronautical engineering. Uh, he was a bright star uh, within the uh, the scientific community in, in Iran. And he was working uh, in a uh, research center in the city of Yazd, which is about 400 miles southeast of, of Tehran, right in the center of, of, of Iran. Um, he had been invited out to dinner by a colleague. Uh, he went to that dinner and on the way home, he suddenly felt very, very sick, and he uh, collapsed into unconsciousness. They rushed him to the hospital in Yazd, and they could not revive him, and he died, and it was determined that he died of poisoning. Mm. And the colleague he had dinner with has disappeared. Yes, they went looking for the colleague, exactly, and he has somehow absconded. Now, the, the thing that um, uh, Intazari was working on is a little bit different than the nuclear program. Uh, he was working on Iran's program of drones and missiles. Uh, and that, I guess, tangentially is connected, um, uh, at least the missile part, because if the Iranians ever managed to build a nuclear weapon, they would have to miniaturize it and put, not put it on the end of a missile. So he's one of the guys who would be doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, but the drone uh, aspect is also important because Iran has used drones to attack Israel. They've tried. The Israelis have shot them down. But they also, of course, use drones uh, to attack the UAE oil facilities and also the Saudi oil facilities. Hmm. So they seem to be pretty good with the drones, but not so good with the uh, old fashioned style of uh, motorcycle hits or poisonings or other methods. You brought up several examples I hadn't known about before Iranian agents trying to assassinate Israelis in several other countries. But as far as we know, they've been spectacularly unsuccessful. Do you have any explanation or why they're so unsuccessful? Is it because of the really terrific Israeli counterintelligence or just, uh, you know, the Iranians just aren't up to snuff? Well, it's more a case of the Israelis having very, very, very good liaison with the intelligence agencies of the countries where these incidents where they tried to pull off these things. For example, in Ethiopia, 
and Turkey and Kenya, the Israelis have very good connections with those respective intelligence services. And, and they're tipped off the Israelis. And so we can assume that uh, there haven't been many Israeli failures in Iran because they would have bellyhooted. They would have rounded up the perps or so on. Yeah. Uh, the Israelis have apparently a very, very effective network inside Iran, and they can strike at will. Uh, they are not only uh, carrying off assassinations, but the Israelis also have a drone attack program inside Iran uh, because they use these quadricopters, these you know, drones with four uh, 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 rotary blades on them uh, uh, that are loaded with explosives. And they have hit several targets in the past few months, uh, causing quite a bit of damage and also killing uh, the scientists that were involved. These were attacks on, uh, on nuclear facilities. And they also seem to get away, which is extraordinary. There was that incident with the so-called uh, automatic machine gun on the side of a road that took out another Iranian official. Yeah. Remember that one? Yes, that was Mohsen um, Fakhrizadeh, who was the chief scientist of the entire Iranian nuclear program. So he was a very big fish. And he was traveling uh, in his car uh, in a sort of resort town outside of Tehran uh, toward the Caspian Sea. Um, and he pulled up to a light. And at that intersection, there was a remote controlled machine gun and camera uh, mounted on a pole. Um, it opened fire, uh, killed him, and then took pictures. Uh, the camera took pictures, uh, uh, conveyed them back to uh, Israeli intelligence to confirm the hit. So mm. this was totally uh, robotic, a robotic mm. hit by the Mossad. Well, this is really a spectacular run or abominable, depending on your point of view. Uh, the Israelis also managed to break into a warehouse a few years ago and steal a bunch of secret um, Iranian plans for its nuclear program, right? Yeah, it wasn't just a bunch of plans. It was the entire archive. Uh, this was an entire nuclear archive that was in a warehouse in downtown Tehran. The Israelis managed to break into it and steal the entire archive by spiriting it out uh, through Azerbaijan which is just to the north of uh, Iran um, and uh, a close ally of Israel. And now we've got a new target. We've just learned, courtesy of terrific reporting in the New York Times, that, um, that Iran is building these tunnels out near Natanz, I believe, uh, to further its nuclear program in a facility, underground facility that, that might be impervious to even bunker-busting bombs. Tell us about that. Yeah, um, U.S. intelligence uh, cameras and satellites have have uh, detected uh, construction of uh, underground tunnels a little bit south of Natanz, as you mentioned. And Natanz is sort of the, the 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 core place, the center of of Iran's nuclear program. Um, the idea here is to, um, at least the the suspected idea is that the Iranians want to build a facility underground for their centrifuges for um, uh, uranium enrichment to weapons grade level if, if needed. Um, and to build this uh, uh, sufficiently underground, as you said, so that it is uh, uh, safe from bunker buster bombs, 
uh, uh, and cyber attacks as well. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the U.S. and Israel uh, collaborated on a uh, cyber attack uh, on the nuclear program that took them offline or really delayed them for about a year. This is a yeah. couple of years ago. So yeah. we can expect that there will be uh, Israeli and U.S. Collaborat collaborationist uh, operations to disable any machinery that the Iranians have going in these tunnels, too. So they're not safe there either. Well, you know, there are two different opinions on what's going on in those tunnels and their significance. Um, of course, the Israelis, uh, because they have the most skin in the game, um, are very concerned that this means that the Iranians are moving ahead uh, expeditiously on their nuclear program in order to produce a bomb. Mm -hmm. The American view is that while the Iranians might be able to enrich enough uranium to produce one bomb, they also have to go through the process of miniaturizing this bomb and putting it on the end of a missile, which would probably take another at least two years. So the Americans don't feel that uh, there's as much urgency in addressing this uh, underground construction as the Israelis do. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, uh, over in Syria, as you wrote recently over at the Spy Talk newsletter, um, Iranian units may be replacing Russian units that are being taken out to fight in Ukraine. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, because the uh, war in Ukraine is not going as swimmingly as the Russians would like, and they've lost a lot of men and equipment, um, uh, Putin basically has uh, the problem of trying to get more men into uniform. He does not want to uh, have a general mobilization because that could expose him to criticism at home. So what he's doing is he's taking forces that are uh, both uh, Russian uniformed forces and paramilitary uh, mercenaries. The Wagner Group is, is the biggest one. And those forces are in Libya and in uh, Syria. Mm -hmm. He's taken them out of Libya already. And there is uh, indications that he very well may take them out of Syria as well along with equipment, meaning uh, when I say equipment, I mean uh, S-300 uh, surface-to-air missiles, things like that. So what would the Iranians be moving into Syria? And, and what kind of threat does that pose to Israel? Right. Well, uh, the Iranians have long desired to build basically a land corridor from Iran all the way to Lebanon. And that would go through Iraq, through Shia, and sympathetic uh, Iraqi Shia neighborhoods of, of Iraq over into Syria, which is also uh, an ally of Iran. Uh, and then Syria borders on Lebanon. And in Lebanon, you have the largest proxy, uh, Iranian proxy group, which is Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. So how would Iranians moving into Syria and with what? How would that change the balance? What would happen is that the um, uh, Iranians, Rev Revolutionary Guards, and their proxies would move into Syria, into the areas that the Russians have abandoned, uh, pulled out of, and that would uh, facilitate the Iranian Revolutionary Guards doing two things. One would be to facilitate the transport of missiles 
And when I say missiles, I mean precision guided missiles. This mm-hmm. is development now. And give them to Hezbollah. And that would create a very, very dangerous front for Israel on its northern border. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they could do is they could establish missile bases in Syria. Uh, these missiles uh, have enough range to be able to hit Israel from Syria. Now, ever since 2017, the Iranians have been trying to do this inside Syria, in areas where the Russians weren't. So this would expand the area where they could do this. Mm-hmm. The Israelis have been hitting them with airstrikes consistently. I mean, there have been hundreds, literally. Just recently hundreds. hit something at the Damascus airport. Yes, and that's a perfect example of the Israelis sending a signal that they will not tolerate uh, any sort of increased Iranian presence in Syria, and they are going to do everything they can to prevent uh, the establishment of missile bases in Syria and the um, transport of missiles from Iran through Syria to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Now, all the assassination stuff, that's very titillating to us outsiders and probably even to the Israeli uh, people. They hear about these heroic, if you will, uh, operations in, in Iran. So, but where's it going? Where, where do, does this end at any time sooner? What's the point? Well, the Israelis have a philosophy, I suppose, that uh, is associated with targeted killings. And this began uh, in the West Bank and in Gaza. The idea was, uh, or perhaps still is, that uh, compare the um, nuclear program or terrorist organizations like Hamas to a car. And a car, a car, an automobile, and you are a soldier at a roadblock. And this car could be a car bomb and it's coming toward you. You open fire on it and you hit, I don't know, the, the windshield or uh, the mirror on the side. It doesn't stop the car. It keeps mm-hmm. on coming. At you. you fire again. This time you take out a tire. You slow it down. Then you open fire again and you hit the engine block and you stop the car altogether. Or you hit the gas tank and it blows up. Okay. In other words, you don't need to kill everybody. You don't need to destroy the entire car. You just need to take out enough elements in the car to stop it, right? Mm. So they applied that approach to terrorist organizations like Hamas, where they killed the leadership. And eventually they saw that the leaders that they were killing were like 19 years old, 18 years old, because so many of the adults had been killed that they were becoming ineffective because these teenagers really didn't know what they were doing. Hmm. So they effectively neutralized these terrorist groups, at least temporarily. They're applying the same approach to the the nuclear program. They know that ultimately to get rid of it, you're going to have to bomb it if that's what's needed. Um, But if they can somehow slow it down and play for time by killing people like Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, the head of the program, then they they slow it down, just like they did with the uh, 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 with the Stuxnet attack that they did with the Americans, the cyber attack that slowed it down for a year, as you mentioned earlier. They were just playing for time. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
ultimately they know that uh, they're going to have to do something much greater. Now, what's interesting is that this assassination campaign of Iranian scientists is beginning to get criticized within Israel by the left. Uh, mm -hmm. Newspaper Haaretz, which is a sort of the, the publication of the left, uh, published an editorial just a few days ago that was very, very critical, uh, basically saying, why are we doing this? Uh, it really isn't slowing it down. Uh, it's not really effective. And we're just getting the reputation for killers. Mm -hmm. Like bullies going slapping around somebody. Of course, yeah. the Iranians aren't innocent kids, but still, but still it's sticks. not a look as far as the Israelis. It's Murder, Inc. Yeah. Now, of course, the Iranians have their own Murder, Inc., which is this Unit 804. They're doing the same thing, or they want to do the same thing that the Mossad is doing. Mm -hmm. So it's, you know, it's well, spy versus spy. They have to up their game to uh, get anywhere near the Israeli track record, uh, as I said, either laudable or abominable, depending on your point of view. It's not going to go away. We'll be back talking to you about this in the near future, I'm sure. Meanwhile, uh, listeners can find your great work over at the Spy Talk newsletter. Jonathan Broder, thanks again for being with us. Pleasure. Well, that situation seems near to a breaking point now. With the nuclear talks virtually frozen and U.N. inspection cameras turned off, that, say critics, thanks to Donald Trump scuttling the nuclear deal that Obama negotiated. And a few days ago, Iran sent out gunboats to play chicken with U.S. Navy ships in the Gulf. But as Jonathan Broder said, dissent is rising among Israelis who say Mossad's assassinations and sabotage operations against Iran are counterproductive and unworthy of the Jewish state. And there's frustration here with our policies toward Iran. So there's still a lot of sorting out to do. Jean? And frustration, too, amongst our allies in the region who feel that the U.S. doesn't have a plan B if those nuclear talks fail. Absolutely. Good point. You can read a lot more of Jonathan Broder's reporting and Jeff Stein's reporting if you subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. Subscribe also to our podcast, if you would, and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Gene Meserve. Jeff is at Spy Talker. And we'll be back in just a moment to talk about a breaking spy case with former Deputy CIA Director John McLaughlin. He was known as Victor Muller Ferreira, a Brazilian, but Dutch authorities say he's really a Russian GRU intelligence agent named Sergei Vladimirovich Cherkasov, who intended to infiltrate the International Criminal Court, where Russian war crimes cases are being considered. Cherkasov, or Ferreira, had constructed an elaborate cover story studying in Ireland and also the Johns Hopkins School of International Studies here in Washington, D.C., it so happens that John McLaughlin, a former deputy director of the CIA, teaches there. And I asked him if he had ever come across the man, then known as Ferreira. Thankfully, I had no interactions uh, with Victor Ferreira that, that I recall, and I think I would recall. My hunch is that he stayed away from me. I have a reputation at the school where I've been now for about 15 years for getting to know my students very well. I mean, I insist that every student meet with me for privately for 15 minutes or half an hour, and we discuss just about everything about them so that I know who I'm teaching. That's probably not a conversation he wanted to have 
with me in particular. Were you surprised that he'd attended SICE? It seems like a pretty bold move. No, I wasn't. Um, I, I think most schools in Washington have had cases like this in the past. SICE has. I know we had a student before I was there quite a few years ago who was working for the Cubans and who went to school there and then went to work at DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, and was then detected at some point, probably in a reinvestigation and um, had come through SICE. So it, it happens. So and I, I think as I try and learn a little bit about his case, uh, that SICE might have been what I would call a laundering stop for him. In other words, these people, Russian illegals, uh, have to establish a, a legend, a story, a cover, and to the extent that they credential themselves in this way, it, it builds layers of credibility on that cover. He, for example, I just learned by reading the Irish papers, <laughs> uh, he went to Trinity College for four years in Dublin. So, you know, Sice was not his only stop on the educational tour. And I don't know yet, nor have I read what he might have done it in Dublin. Uh, and we won't know for some time until there's some kind of damage investigation, whether he had any role at SICE other than to be, be there. And these illegals, uh, this is something, you know, we all worked on when I was in government. It has a long history with the Soviet Union and Russia. Explain exactly what an illegal is for those who might not understand that term. Well, this is a practice, the, uh, what was then the Soviet Union began not long after its creation, 1917, 18, thereabouts, because uh, the country was initially viewed internationally as a pariah. The United States didn't recognize the Soviet Union until 1933. And so in that period, they had very scant diplomatic recognition anywhere. And therefore, they had very few platforms on which to mount diplomacy or espionage. What is an illegal? An illegal is uh, an individual the Russians deploy to another country after having given them what might be called basic training in the culture and language and habits of that country, uh, trying to teach them how to speak how to speak with as little an accent as possible, how to blend in and not be noticed. And they will usually cycle them through some assignments on their way to a country like the United States in order to uh, sand off the rough edges. You know, some of them in the past have come through Canada, spent time in Canada before coming into the United States in order to get North America under their belts and then coming into the United States. And their role is not as spectacular as it is played in the uh, TV series, The Americans, which has a grain of truth to it. That's about two Russians who impersonated Americans and you know, did all sorts of espionage here in ways that would have drawn a lot of attention to them in the real world, not the fictional world. Th these people don't go around murdering people and changing their disguise every other day and having multiple marriages as they did in that TV show. It was a good TV show. Their job is more to blend in, have mundane jobs. If they can, work themselves into close contact with influential people. But I describe their role more as being there for 
an opportunity that might present itself or for a period of time like now like now when russia has limited espionage representation more limited than normal because of all of the russians who've been expelled so i see them as kind of a foundational infrastructure of russian espionage do other countries employ them as well or is this primarily to my knowledge, to my knowledge uh, and i could be wrong on this but to my knowledge, this is a Russian thing. Do you know how many might be currently deployed? Any sense of whether it's just a handful or a larger number? I, I, I don't, but one indication would be Operation Ghost Stories, which took place in 2010. This was uh, the wrap-up and arrest of 10 of these illegals in the United States. And the operation was called Ghost Stories by the FBI because they had all taken covers using the names of deceased people. You know, they're not people who, like a typical Russian intelligence officer, will go through the cycle that we all use, spot, assess, develop, recruit, run a spy. They're more, when you do that, you ultimately give away your identity and your, your, you, you reveal yourself as a, a foreign intelligence officer, whether you're American or Chinese or British or whatever, or Russian. Their job is more to insinuate themselves without discovery into places where they overhear things or maybe can insert a word of influence and so forth, and to just be there. Did you read this guy's cover story? It's pretty elaborate. Yeah, well, uh, Brazilian cycled through, I don't know enough about it yet, but my understanding is he cycled through a number of countries, changed his, changed his identity a number of times and presented himself. I know from the little I've heard from people who did bump into him at SICE that he uh, was evasive uh, or let's say clever uh, when people tried to engage him about where he'd been and what he'd been doing and what he'd done prior to coming there and so forth. And that's not hard to do, frankly. You know, a lot of people do that for innocent reasons. They just don't like to people prying into their private lives. And so it, I, don't, I doubt that raised any great suspicion, though it might have with me because I do get to know people pretty well. The Dutch released a document that they describe as his cover story. I haven't read that Which yet. goes into minutiae about his not liking fish, even though he was Brazilian and having a crush on a school teacher, etc. Are, are these stories usually that elaborate and that detailed? Often. Any cover story Anything you're using for cover, uh, a skillful intelligence officer will fill it in in as much detail as they have cleverness and time and memory to do, because you will encounter situations in which you will need an answer to a question. I could give you an example, you know, examples from my own career, um, but I have to be a little careful because I just have to be a little careful. But let me let me try and disguise one for you. So you're overseas and you are portraying yourself as, let's say, let me make up something, an army civilian employee, a defense de civilian employee, and you're having dinner somewhere, and uh, another table of people detect that you're an American and come over and introduce themselves and uh, say, may we join you? And before long, you're talking about things, and someone says, well, where do you work? And you say, well, I'm a, I work for the Defense Department. I'm an army civilian. And someone says, oh, really? So does my brother. Where do you work? You better know where you work 
you better know what it looks like. You better know other people there. You better know what the hallways look like because the next thing you're gonna hear is, oh, I visited my brother there. Is it always so crowded? Or you're on an airplane and you're sitting beside someone who happens to be very chatty and they wanna go into great detail. I, I had a way to turn that off. You wanna know my secret? Absolutely, because I'm sure I'll use it for other reasons. <laughs> what do you do for a living? Oh, I sell insurance. And that shuts it down right there. Shuts it down, dead in the water. They go oh. back to reading. So the Dutch cut this guy. So, so uh, what I'm saying is, if if he had that elaborate cover story, I, I don't know whether they all do or not, but that is a smart intelligence officer to have thought of everything because people are going to engage you on, someone is going to engage you on a lot of your private life and you better have it. You can't change it all the time because they're going to talk to someone else who might engage you. So you got to have that all clear in your mind. So the Dutch caught this guy. Do you have any idea how? Do you have any idea what the, tipped them off? No, I don't. What I would say, and this is sheer speculation for your listeners, so I'm not revealing anything, uh, sheer speculation that uh, a lot of countries try to follow these people, including the United States. And in a lot of countries, including NATO countries like the Netherlands, share information. This is very sensitive information. It's not widely shared, but at a certain level, there will be a channel for sharing this kind of information, particularly if an illegal you're following moves. And the, the other aspect of this is you frequently follow these people for a long, long time. If you, if you detect them, you follow them rather than wrapping them up right away because you want to know what they're doing. You know, who are they connected to? Why are they here? Keeping an eye on them uh, in various ways can lead you to understand a network, for example. So you don't just move in and wrap them up. I don't know why the 2010 group was wrapped up. I don't know what triggered that. Uh, it did lead to a spy swap in which they were returned to Russia in exchange for, as I recall, four individuals that the Russians had in captivity as alleged intelligence officers. One of them was the British uh, gentleman, Mr. Skirpal, who was then subsequently poisoned by the, by the Russians. So, you know, a spy swap is not your uh, guaranteed um, ticket out of the clutches of the Russian services. He was apparently targeting the International Criminal Court. Yeah, yeah. Is that unusual? Yes, uh, but I think it's a sign of the times, and I, nothing novel in what I'm about to say. Many people have speculated on this. If he could get in there, he would have presumably access or worked to get access to ICC files that would have shown what is being collected about Russian war crimes in Ukraine. So one, he would be gathering useful intelligence for Russia. Two, if you were push that a little bit further, if he could get into the computer system, he could perhaps corrupt that or change it or erase it or you know, make it harder to do these investigations. How significant a loss is it, do you think, to the GRU to have him unmasked? You know, it's my, my guess is significant, but not a body blow. You know, Russia is a national security state, so they, this is something they invest in. I wouldn't be surprised that they had other, many others like this who are circulating somewhere undetected. So it, it's, it's a significant loss in the sense that this fellow was a pretty big investment for them. And 
was close to a target that they right now would uh, have high priority attached on. He apparently was sent back to Brazil. What do you think? What do you think happens to him now? Well, uh, the Brazilians will do an investigation. Uh, They have an intelligence service. They'll try to figure out a number of things. What was he doing there? What was his role in the what was Brazil's role in the broader scheme that the Russians had in mind? Uh, Did anyone in Brazil facilitate his work? So there will probably be a counterintelligence investigation in Brazil to see if he had anyone working with him. You know, had, had the Russians, again, speculating, not insinuating anything about Brazil, had the Russians managed to recruit someone in Brazil, even an official who somehow provided an avenue and cover for him? Don't know. That's something that Brazilians would ask. They could uh, try him and convict him and imprison him. They will probably get uh, requests from Russia for his return, and they'll have to deal with that. I don't know whether the United States will want to extradite him for some reason, because I don't know whether we have any particular charges against him. He may have just been passing through the United States. So I think the Brazilians will have a a dual thing going on. They'll do their own investigation, but at least one other country will want him, Russia, and maybe more than one country. So they'll have to deal with that, bargain for something with the Russians if they want it. Do you think it's going to lead to any changes at SICE? Are you guys going to look potentially more carefully at applicants? I don't know that there's anything a school can do. We can't carry out a counterintelligence investigation. You guys do offer a degree in security and intelligence. And I'm wondering if someone like this Russian agent could theoretically have picked up information or tools of the trade from the coursework at SICE that would serve him very well as a spy for Russia. No, it's, that's a brand new degree. And prior to that degree arriving this year, uh, this is the first year, uh, my course was the only one taught, and he did not take that course. And, and we don't teach anything classified, of course. Everything we teach is from open, publicly available textbooks. Is it unusual that a Russian would use a Brazilian identity as a cover? It is to me, because I haven't seen it before. It may not be unusual. It's just that I haven't seen it before. Uh, so it may be that others have and they've not been detected. You know, you learn a lot from all these cases. And so what did I learn here? I learned that, oh, they don't all go through Canada. They don't all use names that are, uh, I guess I'd say white bread American names, you know, like Susan Jones and Bill Smith. This fellow was, uh, you know, used a, an Hispanic name. And uh, maybe that's a way to in our country, which is increasingly multi, multicultural, maybe that's an, yet another way to blend in or another pocket of identity to throw over yourself. I always tell my students, uh, I quote F. Scott Fitzgerald, who once said that uh, the true test of intelligence with a small eye is the ability to hold two conflicting ideas in your mind at the same time without losing your balance. Th- that's what these people have to do. That's what all people working in espionage have to do at some point. That was John McLaughlin, who had a CIA career spanning more than 30 years, serving eventually as deputy director and briefly as acting director. He is currently a senior fellow and distinguished practitioner in residence at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Great interview, Gene. There's still lots of questions about this fellow, Sergei Cherkashov. 
One is, why did the Dutch let him go? They just put him on a plane, told him, sent him back to uh, Brazil. And as John McLaughlin suggested, he's just one of many illegals Moscow has sent to the West over the decades. Shades of the Americans, a show that I wish was still spinning out new seasons. Yeah, and as John McLaughlin said, he enjoyed that show too. Apparently, he found it pretty realistic, and he would know, having been at the CIA for more than 30 years. Yeah, a lot of the tradecraft was really great. The spy stuff, how to seduce people into spying, how to manage and extort them. All the gun stuff, you know, guns and knifing and fights and sabotage stuff, totally unrealistic. But great show. Otherwise, as every espionage professional knows that, that was right on the dime. Anyway, thanks for listening again. I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Jean Meserve. Join us next week for another edition of Spy Talk. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.